0: It's wonderful to see so many people here uh, tonight, and um, I'm, very, I'm rather pleased that people are sitting on the floor, but I'm sorry for you that you have to sit on the floor. If anybody sees an empty chair next to them, could they perhaps wave so that um, people could there are, there's one there, and I think there may be yes, there are a couple there. Thank you very much. It's a great honour for me to uh, introduce Dame Avril Cameron to give this year's Syme Lecture. It's a particular pleasure for Wolfson because since she retired as Warden of Keble College, we've had the privilege of electing her as an honorary member of Wolfson's Common Room. So her agreeing to give the Syme Lecture this year sets the seal on her connection to Wolfson and brings still more prestige and distinction to a series which is clearly one of the major events in this university's classical calendar. It is also, I must say, a great treat for me personally to have this opportunity to hear Avril Cameron talk about her subject instead of about the kinds of things that heads of houses have to talk about. It's with awe and admiration that I have witnessed her managing miraculously to combine her work as head of house and PVC with an ongoing stream of eminent publications culminating in the Byzantines in 2006, So I welcome the moment at which, for me, one Averill Cameron metamorphoses into the other, like one of the sages in Yeats's Sailing to Byzantium, stepping out of the holy fire and becoming a singing master of the soul. Yet it does strike me that there is a strong thread connecting the academic and administrative sides of Dame Averill's life. She has said that the writing of history demands a total view, a whole picture. She derived originally from Arnaldo Momigliano the belief that a real historian is engaged on a continuous journey of learning and understanding in the attempt to arrive at a total picture. History is process. Her interest is always in the problems of transition and historical change, in how the historian can explain change and in the importance of reading history not only in close-up detail but also with the long view and that steady, determines, coherent, far-seeing approach to history is not unlike her approach to university and college matters. So too, her pioneering interest in the role of women in antiquity links to her notable support for women in this university. Still, I hesitate to push these analogies further, lest it be thought I am implying that the standard assumptions about Byzantium, which she has spent her life's work resisting and altering, its decadence, corruption, decay, autocracy, resistance to change, and fossilized rigidity might have any remote parallels with the University of Oxford. <laughs> All of you will know something of Avril Cameron's work and I will not list all of her books, titles and honours here. As Peter Brown said in his introduction to her 2007 Festschrift from Rome to to Constantinople, her work for other classicists is like a gigantic Gothic cathedral towering over a small city. You have to keep stepping back and back and taking it in as a whole while the details have been piling up over the years into a great life's achievement. She herself has described how she began in the 1970s as a classicist and an ancient historian and moved during her years at King's College on a trajectory that included literary theory and early Christianity into the later periods of Byzantium. In doing so she's challenged what she has described as the incomprehension or disbelief that has sometimes greeted her when she describes herself in ordinary conversation as a Byzantine historian. In book after book, essay after essay, lecture after lecture for over 40 years she has reconsidered, illuminated, re Written and newly understood the period of late antique and Byzantine history running from the fourth to the (coughs) seventh centuries. In her early work on Agathias and Procopius, in books such as Christianity and the Rhetoric of Empire, The Mediterranean World in Late Antiquity, Changing Cultures in Early Byzantium and the Byzantines, she has, as her Feshrift puts it, expanded the intellectual horizons of successive generations of classical scholars. In all this work, the concept, processes, and characteristics of empire have been crucial subjects. So we look forward keenly to hearing her speak on empire, empires, and the end of antiquity. Please make her very welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Hermione. I'm uh, very, very honoured. I always think this is one of the very best occasions in the the academic year, so I see it from another angle tonight. Empire, empires, and the end of antiquity. And this is, of course, the Syme Lecture. Among the perhaps less often remembered items in the CV of Ronald Syme is the fact that he held the post of Secretary General of Sitch from 1952 to 1971, and was its president from 1971 to 75. CIP is the acronym of the Committee of UNESCO Concerned with Philosophical and Human Sciences, and FIEC, the International Federation of Classical Associations, of which I find myself the current president, is still affiliated to it. In this capacity, in 1983, the year of his 80th birthday and a memorable dinner at Wolfson, Syme published a paper in its journal, D'Eugène. Not an obvious place to choose for most of us. Can those of you at the back hear? Good, okay. The paper was published in French as Rome and the Awakening of Nations, L'Eveille de Nation. And in it, he elegantly distanced himself from most of the standard views of Roman imperialism and from any attempt to read back or claim national history or national agendas, German or French, Illyrian or Spanish, into the period of the Roman Empire. He compared the nature of Roman rule with that of the Spanish in the New World. The paper begins with an evocation of Simon Bolivar. And towards the end, He allowed himself to speculate on what might have happened if the barbarian invasions of the late Roman Empire had been successfully contained. Then, and only then, might there have been a slow emergence during the long Middle Ages of states which, over more long centuries, were to become the European nations familiar to us now. He had, of course, addressed this theme much earlier in his book Colonial Elites, published in 1958. But his short paper in Diogenes raises within only a few pages and in a masterly way most of the themes that still preoccupy scholars and critics of empire today. In his retirement from the Camden Chair, Syme, of course, found a congenial home at Wolfson. I was never a pupil of Syme myself, having left Oxford after greats, and eventually, as Hermione said, becoming a pupil of Arnaldo Mamigliano, a very different historian, and one who was, in a sense, Syme's rival, but who deeply appreciated Syme's genius. But I well remember that 80th birthday dinner. In any case, I'm deeply aware that the theme of empire could hardly be more appropriate for a lecture named after such a connoisseur, and I'm extremely honored to have been invited to give it. Among the questions that Syme so lightly raises in his paper of 1983 is that of whether or how far there are lessons to be drawn from history. He does not, of course, think that this could work in any crude way, but what history can provide, he says, is a vast field of observation and comparison. Empires and regimes can be compared, and even if they're very different, the contrast can be instructive. It might also be useful to compare individuals like Bolivar and Augustus, both claiming to be liberators and both masters of spin. As Syme said elsewhere, the real history is secret history. And that was implicit in the Augustan regime from the beginning. Syme's great book, The Roman Revolution, also about the nature of imperial rule, had been, by his own confession, published sooner than it should in the summer of 1939 because, as he put it in the preface, its theme was of some importance. In this late paper, he explores the relation of the central power with local elites. Structures, as such, he thought, were best left to someone like Toynbee, whose star, he says, are greatly dimmed. And he claimed that the Roman Empire was an open society in the sense that Rome allowed local variation and a degree of autonomy while its extension of the citizenship allowed permeability at the center. In this paper, Syme does not focus on the personalities and connections of rulers, but on the mechanisms that made for imperial continuity. He had himself allegedly walked the extent of the western provinces in his youth, and he believed that those who thought that Tacitus was not interested in the provinces should remember his official career, which would have taken him to distant places as a soldier and administrator. Experience was the key thing for a historian. Symes' remark that the coherence of the late empire depended not on the Danube, but on the strategic route between northern Italy and Constantinople and the east, which went by way of Zagreb, Belgrade, and Sofia, perhaps reveals his own wartime experiences in Belgrade, Istanbul, and Ankara in relation to late antiquity, the new empire of Diocletian and Constantine, T.D. Barnes's book of that title had been published in the previous year, he gently dis- distances himself from the famous remark of Andre Piganuel that the, empire, the Roman Empire did not die, it was assassinated, and emphasizes instead the factors that made for continuity. Comparison The techniques of colonial rule, the factors making for continuity, or the opposite, in imperial systems, these are exactly the themes of the debate about empires today, even if they're put rather differently, and certainly not so elegantly. It's no accident then that now when we're in an age of agonizing about the end of empires, the fall of the Roman Empire has made a comeback in the literature on late antiquity. As for empires, comparison and the lessons of history seem to be the order of the day, with the American empire the favorite comparandum. But the range is now global. Not just Rome, or rarely Byzantium, I'll come back to that, but above all, China. Following the European narrative of empire, in the more trade books, if we can call them that, the starting point is invariably Rome. As in Colin Murphy's 2007 book called, in the UK, Are We Rome? The End of an Empire and the Fate of America, published in the US with a different title, the first part of the title, The New Rome. The current genre follows in the model adopted by 16th century Spanish historians concerned to interpret and justify the conquest of the Incas in the New World. Points of comparison then included imperial buildings and material culture, religious organization, moral and legal rules. And inevitably, the comparison turned to the reasons for the end of empire. In current publications, the theme is so egregious that it's hard to know where to start. The subtext has to do with an emphasis on European history, as also in the current academic publications on the fall of Rome and fragmentation of the Western provinces in the 5th century AD. An even more clearly Eurocentric example from a late Roman historian is James O'Donnell's book, The Ruin of the Roman Empire, 2009. From O'Donnell, who's written previously on Augustine and Cassidorus, we have the view from the West, very starkly put, The 6th century Eastern Emperor Justinian is the villain for his misguided attempt to reunite the Western and Eastern halves of the empire in the 6th century. Justinian gets the blame with his religious obsession, his unnecessary and destructive wars, and his failure to secure Mesopotamia, for which read Iraq, in another case of finding lessons in history. In sharp contrast, Theodoric the Ostrogoth is the unexpected hero and real heir to Roman values. Barbarians, in inverted commas, commas, are the true guardians and continuators of Rome, while the Eastern, that is the Byzantine emperor based in Constantinople, is an invader and occupier. It's evident that contemporary concerns underlie the choice of these imperial themes. The current interest in empires is also reflected in comparative historical projects. In particular, the Stanford project on ancient Chinese and Mediterranean empires, run by Walter Scheidel, with two published books, The Dynamics of Ancient Empires from Assyria to Byzantium, edited by uh, Ian Morris and Walter Scheidel, and Rome and China, Comparative Perspectives on Ancient World Empires. And also with a seminar, Uh, a Mellon seminar based at Stanford on the first great divergence, China and Europe. So these are key words, Rome, China, Europe, 500 to 800 CE. The project is focused on comparative methodology, especially quantitative data and structural arguments, and particularly on the comparison of Western and Eastern Eurasia. Though, of course, Comparative history can take different forms, including cross-cultural and diachronic comparison. A stated objective of the Stanford seminar was to find key variables between the two comparanda, with an emphasis on quantitative method and demography, and with factors like plague, large-scale migrations to the fore, population size, and so on. Its primary or a primary interest is on state formation and unification. And unification of um, external groups or or, um, uh, disparate elements was certainly still a primary concern of the young Chinese graduate students I met when I visited there a few years ago. And in general, the emphasis is on structures and not on narrative history. The themes invite us to think about the definition of empire. And in the definition of empire, whatever um, it is, uh, the ability to unify disparate elements is certainly key. That's something of which Ronald Syme was well aware. For all his reputation as a hard-nosed analyst of political power, and which is demonstrated in the short paper that I started with, How far there was centralization and the means by which the center kept things together and disseminated a particular ideology or identity are going to be debatable in any given case, and they may vary greatly. But religious ideology and organization, monotheistic or not, certainly falls under this heading. And so, of course, do the modern religions of liberal democracy and globalization. Late antiquity, seen not just as a chronological period, but also as denoting a cultural and economic system, let's say from the 4th century AD to, let's say, the 7th century AD, does not fit well with this turn to empires. If, of course, one holds to the view that the Roman Empire fell in the late 5th century, then it doesn't fit at all. It's too long. Was there still an empire in, say, the 6th century AD? The Emperor Justinian certainly thought so when he recovered North Africa and tried to recover Italy. If not, how to account for the undoubted continuance of emperors and the imperial idea in Constantinople? In the politics of the 7th century, Italy and Rome still mattered to Constantinople and vice versa. And after all, the Byzantines, ruling from Constantinople, did in fact manage to hang on, repel Persian, Avar, and Arab sieges of the capital, survive a huge loss of territory, the collapse of long-distance sea trade, the enforced end of the importation of grain to feed the capital, and the loss of control of the Mediterranean. The enormous current bibliography on the end of late antiquity, or the end of antiquity, if you like, focuses on two main themes: establishing what have been called chronological bookends okay? and looking for signs of decline, when did the West decline in the fifth century, perhaps, or the East in the later sixth century perhaps or not much le- or not until much later, after the Amiyads in Syria and the East. So three opening articles in a new journal, the Journal of Late Antiquity, by Arnaldo Marconi, Edward James and Clifford Ando, historians of late antiquity, the early medieval West, and the Roman Empire, all deal with the theme of periodization. This is perhaps natural, given the enormous importance now of archeological evidence and the very visible signs of change on urban sites around the Mediterranean. It doesn't take much if you go to Tunisia, or Turkey, or Greece, or Syria, Jordan, or Israel, to see that city life was at one time flourishing, all those sixth century basilicas, and then that its physical appearance changed. Not surprisingly then, the study and interpretation of material culture occupies a dominant place in the literature and is, and has to be, the linchpin of interpretation. So identifying the chronology of change in the material evidence is fundamental, especially change in the nature of cities and settlements. I've just returned from a visit to Lysia, southwest Turkey, which is thick with late antique remains, and where one gets a very vivid impression of an urbanism flourishing in late antiquity, but not much, and certainly not everywhere, after the sixth century. But of course, decline is a slippery concept. Late antique cities, like modern ones, were constantly changing, being remodeled, and in a state of adaptation. One historian can see total urban collapse in the 6th century, while an archaeologist can observe clearly late antique features in the early 8th century Umayyad city of Anjar in Lebanon, built from scratch under the caliph Walid I with its cardo maximus and Roman-style baths. Be that as it may, the contemporary debate about decline or continuity is essentially one about periodization, the dividing up of history into periods so that we can understand them better. But other sorts of change are harder to label in chronological terms. And the related debate about the end of antiquity is also currently cast very much in terms of periodization chronological change, the rival contenders being the fall of the Roman Empire in the West in the fifth century or the long late antiquity focusing more on the East and taken to continue past the Umayyads to maybe 800 AD or even later. And this latter view has had of course enormous mileage since the publication of Peter Brown's World of Late Antiquity in 1971, a book Incidentally, which even then had the prescient subtitle from Marcus Aurelius to Mohammed. It's a view that's getting more and more mileage today, but perhaps not surprisingly, also arousing some strong opposition. But perhaps chronology is only one way to look at it, one way to cut the cake. critics complain that the conception of a long late antiquity is focused too much on the East. And indeed, there is more violence, rupture, and fragmentation to be found if we consider the same periods in the West. But rather than playing the East-West opposition as though one or the other has to be right, this difference in itself should suggest that periodization or chronology is not the only or necessarily the right emphasis. Another challenge made against the long late antiquity model is that it's too bland, and especially that it depends too much on cultural history. Indeed, a fair number of practitioners explicitly refer to themselves as cultural historians. This is not surprising. The East provides enormously rich material and much of it is still there for the picking. Hasn't been studied. It's understandable, then, if late antique historians have seized upon the wealth of surviving material in Syriac and are beginning to write seriously about Sasanian Persia and, in some cases, on the Islamic period as well. And the impact on them of our contemporary preoccupation with Islam is something to which I will return. It seems quaint now to remember that in my day, Oxford ancient historians have barely discovered Christianity, let alone the late antique Near East. I want to see what happens if instead of adopting this vertical approach to the period, defined by dates, we look at it horizontally, and in particular in terms of empires. As I uh, suggested, discussions of empire so far have found it awkward to deal with late antiquity. Byzantium, that is, later Byzantium, is more or less all right, though possibly only a shadow empire in some people's parlance. And the Roman Empire is definitely all right for comparison. But late antiquity is difficult. A time of fragmentation and change when some parts of an old order disappeared, when geographical unity was challenged and political structures were being rethought. Everything was in change. Brent Shaw sees this as the end of a Mediterranean world system a great geopolitical shift, and a time of fragmentation. Byzantinists have also found late antiquity difficult. When did Byzantium begin? With Constantine in, let's say, AD 330, the date of the foundation of Constantinople? Or really only in the 6th or 7th century? And how different is it from the Roman Empire or from late antiquity? The concept of a long, late antiquity going up into the Arab period, the Islamic period, thus also poses a challenge to historians of Byzantium because it seems to encroach on their territory. And anyone who tries to write a book about Byzantium just has to decide how to handle it. Quite simply, you have to decide where to start But if what I might call the late antiquity project poses problems for Byzantium, what of the consideration of empires and its application to late antiquity? An emphasis on empires can take a cultural form, but it does lead one above all to think in terms of structures, economic and administrative terms. Structures include political organization and especially the role and nature of imperial centers. And in those terms, Constantinople did manage to maintain a center, if only just, and the Islamic Caliphate to establish one. The long late antiquity was a period of state formation and therefore of change, as much as it was of cultural continuity. The changes that occurred in this long period were not just those of decline, fall or collapse, but also of political adaptation and the evolution of new patterns of imperial rule. Why am I addressing all this? Well, not least because I'm producing a revised edition of a book I published in the early 90s under the title The Mediterranean World in Late Antiquity, with a rough chronological range defined then as ending about 600, AD 600. And I'm having to think it all through. The new edition will take the material later to the end of the seventh century at least. Critics question the earlier endpoint just as they did the similar periodization adopted in the Cambridge Ancient History, volume 14, and the logic of their comments, I think, has been reinforced since those volumes appeared. In particular, scholarship on late antiquity has taken a definite turn to the east As recently as 2006, writing about a Syriac text from the Church of the East in Sasanian Iraq, Joel Walker found it necessary to devote a lot of space in his book to explaining the historiographical background for the Sasanians on the grounds that Persia was so little studied by late antique historians. He explains that his study approaches late Sasanian Iraq as an integral part of the late antique Near East which, in the form I've described, always, in principle, included the Sasanian and Islamic Near East, but in practice, as he puts it, was often reduced to the later Roman Empire and the post-Roman kingdoms of early medieval Europe. And on those grounds, he includes detailed bibliographical source discussion clearly aimed at a readership that will not be familiar with the subject matter. But this situation is changing, and it's changing very fast. The world of Syriac Christians is already a major field for late antiquists, a horrible term, Uh, and of course it has always been for specialists, um, uh, not least here at Wolfson, and a grasp of Syriac is in certain quarters, especially it seems in Oxford, almost a prerequisite. The Monophysite or Miaphysite opponents of the Council of Chalcedon of AD 451 and their eventual separation from Constantinople and development of their own church and hierarchy in the sixth century Near East are already a major topic. Walker's theme is to do with the Church of the East, the other separatist and non-Chalcedonian church established all over the Sasanian Empire, all over the Persian Empire, even in parts of Arabia before Islam, and this seems likely to follow as another major theme. Late antique historians are wakening up to the fact that there were Christians, churches and monasteries all over the Persian Empire, including southern and western Arabia, and that some of the highest dignitaries at the Persian court were Christians. Just as the Arab Jafnids in Syria adopted physite Christianity and supported Christian shrines and cults in the sixth century, so a Persian shah could take a Christian wife and extend Christian patronage and protection. An uneasy tension existed at times between Zoroastrians and Christians in the Sasanian Empire, but, at the, same, but the same kind of philosophical and religious debates between them took place at the Iranian court as in the Roman Empire and its eastern provinces. We also now know more about the extraordinary religious ferment in the late antique Near East in other ways. One flashpoint was the kingdom of Himyar in southern southern Arabia, modern South Yemen, sadly precipitated into the news this very week. Its inscriptions, studied especially by Christian Robin and his colleagues during a now-ended window of accessibility to foreign scholars, make clear that this state had adopted a highly monotheistic religious position from as early as the end of the 4th century AD and extended its influence into Central Arabia. In a context of competition between Jews and Christians and complex relationships with Byzantium and Aksum in Ethiopia, In the early 6th century, its king adopted a form of Judaism. The commercial and diplomatic interests of the larger regional powers were threatened when he started persecuting the substantial number of Christians in his kingdom. And an expedition was launched from the Christian kingdom of Ethiopia whose interests coincided with those of Constantinople. Christianity was thus imposed in, this, in the sixth century in this corner of the Arabian Peninsula. And a further attempt in the middle of the century was made to extend the influence of Himyar into central Arabia, including a failed attack on Mecca. But in the 570s, it came under Sasanian rule after an expedition uh, launched by sea against it. It became a province of the Persian Empire. But according to Arab tradition, the kingdom received the tribute of all the tribes of Arabia, perhaps not all, but quite a lot. The story of South Yemen in the sixth century vividly demonstrates both the intensity of religious change and competition and their political dimensions in the period before Muhammad. It also illustrates the growth of monotheism and the move to unify the tribes of South Arabia. Closer in date to the activity of Muhammad, similar flashpoints developed within Palestine when the Persians successfully invaded the Roman Empire and in 614 took Jerusalem. Christian writers blamed the Jews for this disaster. This was also the period when the Babylonian Talmud came to fruition in the Sasanian Empire. In Palestine, Jews briefly thought that they saw in the Persians friends and deliverers from Christian rule. The honeymoon, if such it was, soon came to an end. And after all mighty effort, the emperor Heraclius defeated the Persians on their own territory and in 630 restored Christian rule to Jerusalem. Only two years later came the death of Muhammad and the appearance of Arab armies in Syria. The legacy of the years of Persian and Arab conquests was felt locally in far worsened attitudes to Jews and Judaism on the side of Christian Byzantines. Yet, just as both Jews and Christians had been established in Arabia, Jews and Judaism continued to have a strong presence in Palestine into the Islamic period. The lesson I draw from this is that these developments were not isolated from each other. Scholars are still trying to account for the extraordinary figural mosaics in late antique synagogues in Palestine but at the very least, they indicate a striking self-confidence and possibly a response to imperial Christianity. In the words of Seth Schwartz, the Jewish culture that emerged in late antiquity was radically distinctive and distinctively late antique, a product of the same political, social, and economic forces that produced the same, no less distinctive (coughs) Christian culture of late antiquity. Within Christianity and Judaism alike, we can see an emphasis on tradition and authority, which is also evident in the development of Islam. The Near East was already a place of ferment in the early 7th century, just when Muhammad was establishing himself in Arabia. Two existing empires fought it out in a great war, James Howard Johnston's last great war of antiquity. Take his language. But their respective centers still survived. It was left for the Arabs to deliver the final blow to the Sasanians, to challenge the Roman Empire by land and sea, and to establish Muslim rule both in the Mediterranean and as far east as Iraq and Iran. So if, as I believe, there is indeed a turn to the east in the scholarship on late antiquity, what of Islam? Again, I think we can perceive a shift It is no longer enough to leave Islam or the Arabs to specialists. For some at least of the younger scholars entering the field, Arabic as well as Syriac is part of the necessary equipment. The religious life and literature of the Eastern churches continued under Islamic rule. And eventually, Christians began to debate with Muslims as well as with Jews and against other Christians and to develop arguments against Islam or about Islam. It's well known, of course, that in fact a serious awareness of Islam as a new religious order and the realization that it was something both different and there to stay were very slow to emerge among those we might still call Romans or Byzantines. And there again, this was a period of formation and development. Older books and some newer ones carve up the history, and especially the archaeology, of the Near East into pre-Islamic and Islamic phases. But like the chronological or descriptive overlap, if you like, between Byzantium and late antiquity, this is an artificial divide. It's clear, for instance, that the archaeology of the region itself shows no such clear line. In the words of a reviewer of one recent book, on the archeology span of Islamic settlement, quote, one must accept that the term decline should be abandoned along with its correlate prosperity and other emotionally laden terms such as conquest, desolation, nomad invasion, or even the more benign squatters. The boundaries of period and identity, I would say, defining what was Islamic and what was not were far more fluid. Christians in Jordan, for instance, went on restoring and even building churches throughout the Umayyad period into the 8th century. In Nisana, in the Negev, on the border between Israel and Egypt, the population adapted to Arab rule while still continuing to maintain a degree of education in Latin as well as Greek. In Petra, in southern Jordan, a cache of documents found in the early 1990s seems to show a local population on the eve of the Arab conquest using Greek for their formal transactions but used to speaking a form of Arabic. It's not just a case of whether or not there was prosperity before the conquest or continuity after. Rather, the shift of attention among historians to the east and the great increase in evidence and understanding that's resulted invite us to put aside older categories and take a much broader view of developments in the Near East as a whole. There are certainly problems. The spread of evidence is uneven, with a concentration in the texts on religious material. But it's very apparent that both before the so-called conquests, And once the Arabs reached Syria and progressively overturned Byzantine control, the world in which Islam developed was indeed this wider world of the late antique Near East in all its ferment and all its complexity. In the discourse on empires among ancient historians, Islam is not yet very prominent, and indeed We should not of course use the single term Islam as though it connoted an entity, let alone an empire. This is a constant problem with the huge output of books and papers about Islam in Europe. Yet the Umayyad and Abbasid systems were surely imperial and ought to be considered alongside the late Roman Empire and Sasanian Persia. It should be noted that such a starting point that is, looking at these three empires in late antiquity and beyond, takes us away from the classic emphasis on the Mediterranean and the agenda set since Perren and, of course, Brodel. Indeed, Byzantium, whenever we make it begin, looked to the Mediterranean world only in part and only for some of its history. But Byzantium... I now mean the system with Constantinople at its center, which somehow lasted for many centuries, even if we exclude its last diminished but culturally rich Palaiologan phase, certainly thought of itself as an empire. Was able from time to time to extend its control over other substantial geographical areas and peoples and maintained, albeit with some difficulty, a strong sense of center. Indeed, the fact but an exact definition of empire is yet to be agreed, and that ancient states themselves may have used the term in ways that don't fit modern definitions poses something of a hindrance to students of empire. In The Dynamics of Ancient Empire, edited by Walter Scheidel and Ian Morris, emphasis is laid on the process of state formation. And Scheidel has contended elsewhere that the Mediterranean world was less conducive to large-scale state formation than Asia, and that Christianity was less able to unite disparate groups than, for instance, Confucianism. His co-editor, Ian Morris, does not regard the Athenian Empire as an empire because it controlled other Greeks, not foreigners, and didn't become either a multi-ethnic empire or a state characterized, I quote, by a strong sense of foreignness between rulers and ruled. Byzantium scores higher on that basis. It's noticeable that neither late antiquity or the fall of the Western Empire are covered in this book, perhaps for the reasons I've already suggested. And John Holden, the author of the contribution on Byzantium, describes his approach firmly as epistemologically realist and materialist, and as following W. D. Runciman in stressing a Darwinian model of competitive selection for the understanding of the history of empire. Um, I just expand that uh, by quoting, seeing the history of empire as determined by the results of the competitive selection of social, ideological, and political institutional practices. I think there is still a need in looking at our three empires in late antiquity to account for the role of ideology in relation to the successful or less successful centralizing effort of these three late antique empires. A major problem, hinted at already, in accommodating late antiquity to the discourse of empires is that for predictable reasons, its history has become embroiled in that of Europe. One could take the view that this is inevitable Given the classic Mediterranean emphasis in the study of late antiquity and the later Roman Empire, but we're not even certain ourselves about what Europe is or should be. Moreover, the history of Europe is bound up with a teleological narrative about the supposed inexorable rise of the West and the progression to the Enlightenment and modernity. How then? does the broad conception of late antiquity play in this hidden or not-so-hidden theme of the rise of Europe. A new book and a forthcoming TV series describes itself as being about, quote, the origins of Western civilization, ends with Augustine, and in its final sentence says, this is the story of us. Its extremely luscious pictures will win it many adherents. But ancient historians are already tapping in to a large body of writing which attacks the notion of Eurocentricity, including a whole series of books by Jack Goody. There may be flaws in Goody's work from the perspective of an ancient historian, but the Eurasian emphasis taking us as Far East as China is receiving strong endorsement as a way to avoid the twin traps of teleology and Eurocentrism. But again, the concept of late antiquity sits awkwardly with the emphasis on Europe. In the latter, there has to be, logically, a rupture with the East. But then, where to assign Byzantium, let alone the Islamic empire? Being written out of history, is a familiar experience for Byzantinists and Islamists, who both see their subjects excluded from the dominant narrative, that is, the Western European narrative. In the case of Islam, this tactic is obvious, and has led to strenuous efforts, among some Muslim writers and historians of Islam, to write back Islam into the history of Europe, and to make rival claims for Islamic learning and innovation. As far as Byzantium is concerned, a similar tactic relegates the Byzantine Empire to the category of an, quote, orthodox civilization, somehow essentially different from that of Western Europe. This is not the place to debate this idea, but note that it's not just to be found in Arnold Toynbee or as revived by Samuel Huntington. I'll just observe that it only works on an understanding of Byzantium that removes it from the late antique world. Indeed, the emphasis on the special orthodox society of Byzantium has a particular role in the literature as the complement to a perceived emergence of Latin Christendom um, in the 11th and 12th centuries in which Byzantium usually gets a bad press from Western historians and Western-centered sociologists. And I would also note, in relation to the new enthusiasm for Eurasia in scholarship on late antiquity, that Eurasianism can be used in different ways. It has rather different connotations in Russian debate, for example, where it refers to a distinctly anti-European trend and a desire to take conceptions of Russian identity away from Western European models and back to the East. In the latest forms of this model, neo-Eurasianism, Religion is made the foundation of civilizations with orthodoxy, Islam, and empire as key elements. I cite the Russian example only to point to the obvious danger of insisting on the essences of supposedly different civilizations, a danger which also lurks behind any attempt to draw too sharp chronological dividing lines by historical period, and indeed, also in the language of decline and fall. History is not least about description. And for the period I've called in this lecture, Late Antiquity, the term Byzantium applied in quite different ways by different scholars writing at the same period is a particularly good example of how difficult definitions can be and how the language of historical description actually matters. But we need to return to empires and how a consideration of empires can help with the problem of the end of antiquity. For a start, adopting the framework of empire helps us to get away from the current unhelpful seesawing of scholarship between the West, Western Europe, the early medieval kingdoms, and the East, defined as the eastern provinces, above all Syria and Palestine, with Egypt in a somewhat uneasy relationship to them we have been, I would suggest, too hung up on questions like comparative prosperity or the effects of barbarian settlement. It's not a question of weighing up whether the Roman Empire came to an end with the barbarian invasions in the West in the fifth century or continued up to some much later date in the East. Nor is it a matter of alternative emphases on military, economic, or cultural history, each one of which is in fact central to analyses of empire. In particular, it's not a competition between early medievalists and late antiquity proponents, though it sometimes feels like it. What I'm suggesting is that the ground needs to be shifted. Consideration of empires, states and state formation, removes any problem about considering the East. It accommodates the greater agenda, which, despite some difficulties, wishes to place Rome in the context of Eurasia. It helps us to avoid the danger of an emphasis on civilizations and the notion of an inevitable clash of cultures. It also helps on periodization because instead of the attempt to find a single date for the supposed end of antiquity, it allows us to see that historical change is complex, that older structures were changing and state formation taking place over the same period and within the same chronological range in different places. One entity did not replace another in simple chronological terms. Rome, or Byzantium, if you like, Persia, and the Caliphate were not separate entities, simply defined. They were inexorably implicated together. Like Syme, I'm interested in the connections between ancient history and our own concerns. And late antiquity was indeed a laboratory for most of the issues facing the world today. Above all, the roles of religion in politics, Christianity and Islam, identity and community, and so on. It was not just a time of decline or fall. Though the term identity is very overused, it was a time of changing identities, sometimes painfully so. And this has been the subject of a lot of the work done recently on both East and West. The movement of people's migration and deportation is also part of this. And these identities were formed in the context of state formation, the positive, not just the negative, not just collapse, but building up and adaptation. I continue to believe that current experiences in the societies we live in exercise a powerful influence on the historical questions we ask. As for the empires I've been considering and the interlocking questions of identity formation and state formation in what ways and how successfully these empires promoted and managed collective and individual identities, these take us right back to Ronald Syme and the themes of the Roman Revolution. Thank you.
0: Thank you enormously. So lucid, calm, and steady was the tone of this lecture that you might have expected it to be wedded to a conclusive, clear-cut theory of periodization of hard and fast definitions of the fall of empire, of what Dame Avril nicely called chronological bookends. To the contrary, as she cunningly built up her argument, the end of empire, the continuation of the imperial idea, the relation of west to east, became increasingly and provocatively complex, ambiguous, and open-ended. Decline, as she said, is a slippery concept. One of the historical lessons she teaches us is not to oversimplify or make false claims, to allow into our arguments the difficult the fluid, and the awkward. It's a valuable lesson not only for ancient historians. Thank you enormously.